0: We are in the book of Daniel, and last week we got through the first two chapters. And Daniel's job description is apparently the same as the court wise men, astrologers, necromancers, and and so forth, because he was in line to be killed when those guys couldn't answer the king's dream. He gets promoted, and as a bit of backstory, it appears that he becomes the chief of that group of folks. And of course, we'll see in tonight's reading, they don't hold any goodwill toward him or any thankfulness toward him for having saved them. Having said that, and I'm getting this now from an old Chuck Mistler study, there is speculation that Daniel read them in to the Tanakh. One of the things you'll see today is that Nebuchadnezzar himself worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it would be natural that that group would be read into the Tanakh. At the birth of the Messiah, it is speculated that the people who came from the East, the wise men from the East, were in fact these guys the successors of Daniel's wise men. And it is not the case that they would have shown up, three guys with straggly beards on three camels. They would have come with a fairly large retinue. They would have traveled with armed escort and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And one of the reasons that Herod kind of freaked is that these guys were known for astrology, astronomy, knowing the Tanakh and so forth. And one of the things that they do then is they would come and authenticate a new ruler. So we saw in the stars that this is going to happen now. We're here to meet this guy. And with their reputation, Herod would say, oh, shoot, does that mean that somebody is now about to replace me?" especially since Herod is not a Hebrew. Herod is an Idumean, which is an Edomite. So he has always been really tenuous on the throne. He's supported by the Romans. And so if you have an uprising, he is very disposable to the Jewish population. So to have these guys show up from Medeo-Persia with the message that there is a new king in this area would have been very, very unsettling to him. So it's a bit of backstory, and, and one of the reasons that Daniel is important because what it does, obviously, is the Babylonian exile takes Judah to Babylon, and then they stay in the persia So there is a rich tradition in that area of Tanakh study, in addition to the normal Babylonian astrology, astronomy, necromancy, all that other stuff. So, at the end of chapter 2, which we finished last week, Nebuchadnezzar brought Daniel in as his chief of staff and then set Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah over the province of Babylon. Babylon, at this point, is an empire, so they have stuff that goes from the east to the west, and Babylon proper is simply one of the provinces of this empire. So when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are made satraps over the province of Babylon, Babylon City, and the capital is in the province of Babylon, but you have a civil administration that runs it. And you have Nebuchadnezzar's court, who is really more concerned with the affairs of Empire. So that's where we are at chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits, which is ninety feet, and its breadth six cubits, which is nine feet. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. We're just now we're talking about the province of Babylon. So it isn't necessarily set up in the city of Babylon, it's set up in the province. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the ministers, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I do not have any idea whether this image bears any relation to his dream. Uh, Certainly scripture doesn't say so, but... The last thing we had was the prophetic dream, and it would not be terribly surprising for him to try and construct something out of that dream, but it doesn't say so. Verse 3. When the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So notice that, O peoples, nations, and languages. So what he's done is he has brought in the regional administrators from the rest of the empire. So you would have had people from what became Medeo-Persia. You would have had people from Judea and so forth. So all of his governing authority there for the dedication of this idol. And by the way, we're going to see that same situation set up in the book of Esther. Because remember when Ahasuerus assumed rulership, he also brought all of the governors, if you will, all of the officials from his empire in, to look them all in the face and say, I'm the emperor and I'm really rich and I'm going to treat you really well as long as you do what I told you to do. But if you don't, then it won't go so well for you. So verse six, and whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is not like they had a radio broadcast. So the only people that can hear it and fall down and worship are the people on the parade ground. But they do represent the entire empire. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So this is sort of what I let off, because remember, in the incident of the dream, the only reason these guys are still alive is because Daniel was able to interpret the dream. These guys show no more loyalty than any Democrat. I'm serious. They are court denizens, what we would call swamp denizens. And the way you get ahead in the swamp is by climbing up over other people. There is no long-term loyalty. There is only the loyalty of power. So what they are doing is they are taking an opportunity to get rid of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order so that they can take up their places. We talked last time that the... Staff that was in line to be executed last week had been picked by Nebuchadnezzar's father. They were not his. So part of what he was doing was trying to check them out and see if they were any good. And then when he appoints these hostages from Israel over the top of them, it's sort of like, how dare you elect President Trump? Hillary is supposed to win. I'm putting it in modern terms, but this is precisely what's going on. And I'm not particularly doing it to knock Democrats, although that's entertaining. I'm simply saying that what you're seeing is the behavior of people who live in a capital city or the capital of an empire. This is the behavior that you see among those people, and we're seeing it today in our country, in Europe, any place. It is not limited to anybody. So anyway these guys have seen an opportunity to take these jewish upstarts out get rid of them and substitute themselves and understand in court politics certainly the trifecta home run is if you can get them removed and killed that's the ultimate goal However, if you can just get the king to drag them in there and chew them out a bunch that's almost as good because what that does is it knocks down their power and influence and sort of makes them walk on eggs. And so they're always now looking over their shoulder, and that gives you other opportunities to seize power or to, to undermine them and take power. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar brings him in, gives him an opportunity. You know, it's entirely possible that it's a false and malicious report. So what he's doing is bringing him in, giving him an opportunity to do what's right. 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Up yours, O oh king. Uh, that's what they're saying, Okay. <laughs> So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice that there's no, O king, live forever. There's nothing flowery, this is literally... Up yours, O king, we ain't going to worship your idol. I mean, it is that much in your face. There's no flowery court language. There's no softening this whatsoever. They're saying, uh, O king, you have no right to summon us about this, and we're not going to bow down to your idol. If our God saves us, fine. If he doesn't, fine, but we're not going to do it. I mean, it's literally that blunt. 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. I think so. As I say, these guys have flown the bird at him. I mean, it's literally that stark. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is to say he turned purple with rage. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. So what's happened here is it's like a blast furnace, or like one of your rocket stoves kind of a thing. One of the things that occasionally happens in, in uh, steel mills where they use the, the old blast furnaces is you'd get clinkers built up, which is basically slag. And having somebody break those clinkers up is exceptionally dangerous because there's always the possibility that you'll get a backdraft. and people routinely is too strong a word. People die doing that often enough that it's recognized as being extremely dangerous. So that kind of a thing is what's happened To the guards. The other thing, before we go on here, Daniel is not there. Daniel is not involved in this speculation. Daniel, remember, is the chief of staff of the empire. It is entirely possible that he's out somewhere doing administration. And the fact that he isn't in town is one of the things that gives these Chaldeans the idea that they have an opportunity. In other words, the king's right-hand man, who is a co-religionist of these three, is out of town. Therefore, these guys are sort of exposed. And they're not in Nebuchadnezzar's presence all the time, like Daniel is. They don't have as much clout as Daniel has. And certainly, had he been in town when this happened, he would have been in this story somewhere. 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Now, I got to tell you, had I been in the furnace and he said something like that, I would have said, Come and get me. You want me? Come get me. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I don't know what he promoted them to since they were already run the place, but what the heck. Note the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh, when he's presented with evidence that the Hebrew God is something to be contended with, he stiffens his neck and resists. Nebuchadnezzar just instantly says, Whoa, I'm going to make a decree. Nobody's going to slander your God. You continue to worship him because I can't do anything about it, if nothing else. His reaction when faced with a superior foreign God is very different from Pharaoh's reaction. Chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar is the only pagan king that I know of whose testimony is recorded in the Bible. This is Nebuchadnezzar's come-to-Jesus meeting, and this is his testimony. This is the testimony of one who has had an encounter with the Most High God, recognizes him, and worships. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Notice he he does not repeat the tell me the dream sequence. Verse 8. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Notice what his title is. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grasses of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from the, from the man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. Because all wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able. For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So, you've all been through this before, and you know that the interpretation is not going to be favorable to Nebuchadnezzar. I will suggest to you that it is entirely probable that the other wise men also knew what was going on but were afraid to give the interpretation. And the thing about Daniel is Daniel's credibility is such and his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar is such that he is able to give the interpretation even though he is clearly reluctant to do so. I have no idea whether anybody else understood it, but the fact that they didn't say anything, if they did understand it, surprises me not at all. So I'm in 19 and a half. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, And it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stuff of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet by the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come to my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So the lesson to be learned here is humility. The lesson that's being taught by this is, hey, O king, don't get too big for your britches, because I put you there, and I can take you down anytime I want to. That's the lesson he is learning from this. Different lesson that he learned from Shabrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. A couple of things. This is the testimony of a pagan king reading that declaration of testimony i have no doubt whatsoever that nebuchadnezzar is in the kingdom of god the question that's really interesting and this is again speculation is daniel knows what's going on when the king goes wackadoodle and starts running around on his hands and knees in the meadow the natural inclination of All of his court is to throw a net over the guy and lock him away because he's crazy as a hoot owl. Madness of King George. If you haven't seen that movie, it's a good movie. Madness of King George. The king that we rebelled against was taken with madness like this for a period of time. And the movie is about the court intrigues between the time he goes mad and the time he regains his sanity. Excellent movie. But anyway, the, the whole point is, we've already had set up in the book that his court are a bunch of sharks. And so if the king has gone whack-a-doodle and is wandering in the meadow, mooing and eating grass, you can imagine that there's no shortage of people who would just as soon step up and become emperor. Members of his family, members of the court, and the speculation that I have heard, which I like very much, I think it's probably true, is Daniel is the one that kept things together during the time that Nebuchadnezzar was out of commission. Daniel was the regent. Daniel was his chief of staff, second in command. One of the things that people probably learned is you don't mess with the Jews because if you try and throw them in a fiery furnace or something like that, you're liable not to survive. And of course, we'll see what the lion's done later on that they do take a run at him and that doesn't work. So Daniel has got presence, power, authority. And it is my speculation that during whatever seven periods of time were that Nebuchadnezzar was out of commission, Daniel was running the place. And he was running it on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he knows the prophecy. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be restored. He knows that this is from God. So he is a humble regent. He does not try and usurp the throne himself, although he possibly could. The lesson here is not the power of God. The lesson here is, I set you up, I can take you down, and I can put you back up again. The lesson here, as Nebuchadnezzar sees clearly because he says so, is humility. The Hebrews go into exile periodically. And there are four temperaments in exile that go with the temperaments of the tribes from which the hero of the story arises. And if you go back to Jacob's blessing of his sons, you can see the blessing that he gives each of his sons shows up when that son or descendant becomes an administrator in exile. So the first one is Joseph. And Joseph is of the tribe of Joseph, and Joseph is an exceptionally good administrator. So if you're going to go into exile and you're going to be there a while, having Joseph in charge is a good deal because he makes everything run smoothly. Joseph, however, does not have the grit necessary to bust you out of exile. You see it in the Genesis. Joseph never, ever, in any way, goes against Pharaoh. Joseph is very competent, very capable, but very, very mild-mannered. So that's the tribe of Joseph. The second one is the tribe of Levi. That's Moses. Levi is a hothead. And you see that in the blessing that Jacob gives to his sons, because remember, Simeon and Levi take out a small village. So Levi is a hothead. So if you need to break out of exile, Levi is your guy. So Moses comes up out of the tribe of Levi and takes charge of the nation and busts them out of Egypt. The third one here is Judah. That's Daniel. And Daniel is also an extremely good administrator. But one of the things that we'll find out is Daniel doesn't take any crap from anybody. He has been told by the word how long they're going to be there. And when we get to Belshazzar's feast, He's going to look right at Belshazzar and say, you're toast, and oh, by the way, keep your rewards, I don't care about them. So Judah is the kingly tribe, combination of really good administration and the ability to admit his own mistakes. That is what distinguishes Judah. The fourth one in exile is Benjamin, and that's Mordecai in the book of Esther. Benjamin is lethal. And what happens in the book of Esther is the second-in-command of Hazuerus' empire takes a run at Mordecai and the Jews and gets wiped out and never even sees it coming. It is just the most beautiful taking somebody's knees out from under me you ever saw, and Haman never sees it coming. At the end of the book it is very obvious that Ahasuerus is scared to death of Esther and Mordecai because she comes in and says, oh, king, uh, you haven't ever rescinded that decree about killing my people. Oh, you're right, I haven't. (laughs) Because the last thing he wants to do is mess with them because he's seen what happened to Haman. And he saw that nobody saw it coming until... Everything just collapsed around Haman and he was hanging from a gallows. So he doesn't wanna mess with these folks. So those are your four temperaments in exile, Joseph, Levi, Judah, and Benjamin. And each one of those temperaments is shown in scripture. And each one of those temperaments, their behavior in exile follows the blessing that Jacob gave to his sons. So the personality, if you will, of each tribe carries for generations.